Welcome, tennis fans, to KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, brought to you by Carvana. We sell cars, but we are not car salesmen. Featuring International Tennis Hall of Famer, former world number one, Mats Vlander, and Texas Longhorn all-time great, two-time All-American Johnny Levine. Your host of KickServeRadio.com is Andy Zoden. So, take it away, AZ. And take it away, I will. It is the Aussie Open edition of Tennis Channel Podcast Network's KickServeRadio.com. I'm your host, Andy Zoden, joined by the great Mats Vlander, seven-time Grand Slam champion, former number one in the world, International Tennis Hall of Famer, as well as Texas Longhorn all-time great, two-time All-American, Johnny Levine. And boys, it was quite an Aussie Open. History was made in so many ways. Let's start with that. Mats Vlander, Rafael Nadal wins for the second time. And that moves the needle in the history books, as we all know, because that brings him within one Aussie Open of the three that you won. How nervous does this make you? This is the most unlikely uh, comeback (laughs) and Grand Slam victory that I think I have witnessed, uh, unless I go back to maybe when Rafa won his first French Open. But then again, that wasn't so weird because he was already so good. This was an incredible comeback. Um, I don't know how he survived Denis Shapovalov. Uh, He played great against Matteo Berrettini. And uh, Medvedev was just way too good after 10 minutes that there was no chance he's going to turn this match around. I have no idea how he did that. I mean, there's a reason why he hasn't won the Australian Open more than once before. I think he needs the preparation. He needs the matches uh, because that gives him confidence compared to just practicing. And I think winning that uh, lead-up tournament uh, in Melbourne, beating Maxime Cressy was a huge, huge win for him and confidence boost. And he got four extra matches on Rod Laver Arena. Which, which can never hurt in front of empty stands so you can be relaxed. So, I, I mean, I'm, I was completely shocked, uh, lost my voice because I was screaming so much in this dark little cube studio in London, basically in the middle of the night. Uh, but uh, that was un- unbelievable. I don't know. I still don't understand quite how he got Medvedev to allow him to play. And I, I still don't know how he won points because he wasn't winning on his first serve very much. Uh, Medvedev put 97% of the serve returns back in the fourth set. 97% of both first and second serve. That means Rafa has to win the point. And I'm so like, how did he do that? How does he win the points? I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't quite explain it. But obviously, he wins 5% over here, 5% over there, 5% over there. And he figure, figures out 20 ways to win points. Uh, and there's, there's your quota, I guess. But to me, it's, yeah, I, I have to say it's the most remarkable comeback in one of the more historical matches or maybe not if not the most historical match of all time johnny you were were pretty sure and and rightfully so that that let's face it medvedev squandered some opportunities uh an opportunity at love 40 on nadal's serve to take a commanding lead in the third set he had all kinds of break points to get back on serve at two three at that at actually nadal serving three two in the fifth and squandered three or four break points there. Did you think that the tightness 
that you would attribute to Medvedev had anything to do with the crowd? Because at first I kind of rolled my eyes when I saw some of the narratives of the inappropriateness of the Australian crowd. But the more I hear about it from who I consider to be some legitimate sources really did agree that this crowd was extremely inappropriate. One thing to be biased toward Nadal and root for him, but another thing to just be so overtly negative toward Medvedev. Did that have, did that play a part in this result in your opinion? Well, you know, while I was watching the match, I wouldn't have thought so, but in the press conference after he went through quite a, a rant, a rant about this story that he talked about being a young kid and dreaming about being in slams and how that this experience affected that dream because he was so uncomfortable and felt so negative about the crowd being against him and that it really hurt him. And so I think you have to really believe that it did affect him because of the way he talked about after the match. So looking at it now, yeah, I think he held it in during the match, but you know, I think there were so many different factors going on. If you think about the crowd and then you think about him believing this match that he was the favorite versus the match at the U.S. Open where I, I believe he, he, he felt like he could just swing out. He had nothing to lose. This was a match that I, I truly believed he felt like he was the favorite. And I think him thinking that hurt him because there were definitely moments in this match that he really could have could have run away with it, uh, you know, in the third set, being up 3-2 and love 40 and uh, not capitalizing there. And then you could see that, you know, Nadal was playing well. He got back in the match and then he got Nadal got up the break in the fifth only for him to show some nerves at 30 love serving 5-4, which you don't see Nadal usually show the nerves, but he certainly did. And then when it got to five all, you would have thought that Medvedev would have really honed in and, 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 and held serve, but then he, he didn't capitalize on, on Nadal being nervous and then he let it go. And, and that was it. So I, I do think nerves played a part in it. Uh, it wasn't like a outward choke, but I, I, I think the nerves cost him the match. I think it affected his legs. I think, you know, I think I think he really squandered an opportunity to to win his second slam. I was disappointed in that. Let me ask you, Andy, because you were obviously watching here back in America, and I was in London. And I was watching on um, on uh, Eurosport, sometimes on the World Feed. So I don't know if we get the same pictures. But Andy, did you get all the the different situations that he was in against Maxime Cressy? He was in a situation. Uh, he was in a situation with Felix. Uh, he was in a situation with with Nick Curios after the match. He was in a situation when they were booing him, and he was saying to them, "Please stop booing. This is Jim Courier. Show him something." Did you get all that, Andy? We got it, and I heard a lot about it. But unfortunately, Matt, I've just gotten to an age now where I just can't make myself stay awake. I catch the highlights, <laughs> and I and I I have to you know I have to you know lean on you to come back and give us, you know, to color inside the lines. I think Johnny and I, you know, we get the high points and we certainly watched both finals and we talked about what we saw and some of the, you know, Johnny always kind of was teasing me during the week going, are you watching replays today? You know, because I would talk about a doubles match that had been played 12 hours earlier and he's laughing at me, but you know, I wanted to see a little bit of the Kokonakis and Curio. So yes, I saw some things that had happened, but, 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 uh, you know, I would always kind of trace it back to that U S open where, 
you know, the Johnny just referenced where he made that final and played Rafa. And for two entire weeks, he, he had put the crowd against him. He had put the, the crowd squarely against him. And it seemed like he almost did it intentionally. And it almost seemed like a similar situation here where he's, he's ready to go with a me versus the world. And I'll show you guys. And then as soon as the tournament ends and he loses and he takes the microphone, you can't help but like the guy. It's like, you don't like him for two weeks. And then you watch him play an amazing final. You have a lot of respect for his tennis. And then he speaks into the microphone and you go, well, this guy's got some good personality and he is a little bit more likable. But boy, during those two weeks, it's it's tough to get your arms around the guy. Yeah, no. I mean, the worst thing he most probably did to me was when he played against Maxime Cressy and he loudly screamed out that this is the luckiest player I have ever played against. <laughs> and I am the most unlucky player today and on and on and on. And then somebody asked him about it after the match. And, they, and he said, admitted to, well, I kind of said it loud enough so that maybe my opponent might hear it and it might change the course of, of the match. Uh, the Jim Courier booing when he said they were during the Nick Kyrgios match, he said they were booing between first and second serve. And, and Jim is like, I think by now we know it's not booing. They're saying zoo for Cristiano, uh, Cristiano Ronaldo when he scores oh. a, a goal. And then, and he's then Medvedev goes to Jim. I can't hear you. I can't hear you. Please, people, please, please stop booing. Show some respect for Jim Courier. Show some respect for. So, so that was the other thing when he played Felix. There was the umpire when he completely lost it with the umpire. Um, in his first round, the second round, they asked him about the crowd. And he said, well, it's a relationship. Uh, sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad. Uh, but it's like any relationship. And it has to be more good than bad. Otherwise, it's not going to work. So I think that he's been stirring it up. I don't think he deserves it at all. But I think he's been stirring it up to the point where I think people that went there they, they kind of knew that, okay, this guy is fun. He seems like he can deal with it. He can handle it. We really want Nadal to win. And I think they took, they didn't really take it out of Medvedev, but I think they had a few too many beers. They've been in lockdown for two years. And uh, they thought, you know what, let's just get on Medvedev a little bit. He seems like he can handle it. He's the favorite. Uh, and um, so I'm not really sure if I, um, I think he, he, he kind of made that bed himself. He made the mess. Uh, he still doesn't de- deserve to be booed between first and second serve because that's expected it should be thrown out for right. sure. Um, but um, I, so I don't know. He's a great guy. I mean, we had the best interviews with him uh, of all the players. He's funny. He's nice. He's honest, which sometimes doesn't go down well with uh, with um, other players and and the media and the spectators. But he's special, and I, I'm surprised that he actually went so far in the press conference to somewhat blame um, the crowd a little bit. I'm very surprised about that. And I think that is a massive, massive mistake that he made. Johnny, I'm going to ask you a question, which, you know, I kind of, I guess to some extent at times I'm sort of our show's version of Chris Fowler, the way I kind of bounce back and forth between the sports of football and tennis. But today here in the United States, we had two, two big stories. We had the story of, Tom Brady's official retirement. But then that story gets usurped by that of Miami Dolphins, former coach Brian Flores suing the the NFL, suing the New York Giants, the Denver Broncos uh, and the Miami Dolphins for for different things that he considers to be 
uh, racial bias. And, and it's almost a similar situation as to what we had in the Australian Open to where the big story is Rafael Nadal winning his 21st major championship. Maybe the big story if you're Australian is Ash Barty winning the first major championship by any Australian Open or by any Australian player that is in 44 years. But really the big story was what happened with Novak Djokovic. Are you concerned that with what we're seeing in sports like football and tennis, that the politicization, if that's a word, uh, of the sport is, is becoming divisive in such a way that we can't even go to sports to get away from the divide. We used to be able to just watch, you know, Mats Vilander, for instance, beat Guillermo Vilas in the finals of the French Open and everybody celebrate that or an amazing Borg McEnroe final, or an amazing Sampras Agassi final, Nadal and Federer. And now suddenly there just seems like there's more to the story in tennis and in other sports than what we used to concern ourselves with. Does that bother you? Yes, it does. I, I prefer sports to be unpoliticized and meant for the enjoyment of, of the fans and the appreciation of the athletes and the athletes being able to play without thinking about you know, how it affects uh, different viewpoints uh, politi- politically. And I, I, it saddens me. I don't like it. Um, it. It seems to be pretty heightened in sports right now. In a lot of different uh, sports, you see it. And um, I, I hope it uh, goes back to like what you said, where you can watch a Borg McEnroe or a McEnroe Vlander Davis Cup marathon and not I think you've mentioned that in every show I do. <laughs> and, not, and not have to think about any sort of political viewpoint that's going to pop up in it I, I just don't like it and I I I, uh, I think I kind of know where it started and uh, I I I'm not even going to go there because I don't want to talk about it okay fair enough before we check out and and, and go to break Matt so I'm going to ask you something that sort of dovetails on, on uh, something that Johnny said, where, you know, he talked about um, Medvedev being able to kind of freewheel and, 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 and swing away against Rafa in that U S open final when he wasn't the favorite. And then this time he was a clear cut favorite and clearly the burden of that expectation at some point or another crept into his mind. And in a similar situation, you were able to kind of, swing away at age 17 and, you know, take out Vetus and take out clerk and take out Lendl and eventually Velos in the French open final. But then you come back the following year and you're probably expected to beat Yannick Noah in that French open final. How did the burden of those expectations change your approach to a match against Noah, who I don't think anybody would have ever confused as being, you know, the clay court genius, certainly of a Guillermo Vilas, who you had beaten in the final the previous year. I think expectations when you're a top player turns into overconfident. Um, I really don't think that Medvedev would have, would have felt the expectations from the outside world um, that thought that he was the favorite. I think he comes into that match being completely overconfident that there is nothing Rafa can do uh, to beat me. And then he gets, he, he gets, the credit for the first two sets. Oh, look, there is nothing Rafa can do. And then I think he becomes a little passive uh, because you can't really tell that he was choking 
Uh, I mean, obviously, both of them are choking all the time. Everybody chokes all the time. That's how you basically how you win majors because it means you care more than most people. So you have to deal with with the, the nervous part. But I feel like Medvedev, it wasn't that his forehand went or his backhand went or his movement went or his serve went. It was just most probably a couple of percentage points everywhere. Um, and um, I think that he he kind of stopped thinking out there. I think he was just letting things happen Rafa cannot come back he's 35 years old it's two sets to love blah on and on but I think overconfidence is the danger where you are so confident in your own ability and you don't even worry about your opponent which is what happened with me and Noah and then it turns out your opponent comes out and plays the completely opposite of what you thought he was going to do which I didn't really see with Rafa in the beginning I thought Rafa played the way that we expected him to play he served horribly the first two sets um and uh so I, I really don't know where where it kind of went wrong for Medvedev. The break points in the third, but Matt, what about in the fifth set though? When you talk about what really broke down, I believe he was down a break, three two, and he was love forty. He had love forty, and he didn't get a return in. He missed three returns on three break points. No, it wasn't love forty. It was three break points. Yeah, and he missed three returns. Now one of them was pretty tough but the other two were just routine right and 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 that's very unlike Medvedev and I don't know if that's nerves or not but 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 you just can't do that on those that those kind of big points right he missed them long didn't he he missed one wide and uh and you know for for I I I would subscribe to the theory that uh you know five and a half hours in I don't know that you can't give a guy a break and just say you know sometimes you're just not going to be still 100%. And, and I don't think you see that in, in with with top players. I don't. I, you just you just you, you don't just miss the return. I right. just think at that point in the match, how do you not make the guy play a point? You know, or play a shot? Well, you know, this is coming from a guy that in in the three years that I watched you play at UT, Johnny. I'm not sure I ever saw you miss a backhand return. Well, so, yes, and, and hey, that's the honest to God's truth. Yeah, you I know, don't no, think no, I no. ever saw the guy miss a backhand. No. So if he wants to say this, I will give Johnny that. But Medvedev doesn't miss either. So, yeah. anyways, I you talk about one shot. It just that was a little bit of a surprise. But like you say, anything can happen in, in any match, and and uh, you do in the end have to give all the credit to Nadal because, I mean, let's face it. I mean, that guy pulls out some incredible shots and in, incredible points in in the 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 biggest points he, he makes the greatest shots and you just don't know how he gets some of these shots back yeah and he does it in the big moments and uh and so you gotta you know 35 years old and that kind of a five set grueling match um you know he was the in the end he was the warrior and he outdueled uh it was like the you know like an iron man right i mean he's the was the last man standing for sure so glad that we are recording what Johnny Levine just said. All right. When we come back, let's talk about a female that if she were to run for prime minister of Australia after that performance, she just might win. You're listening to kickserveradio.com. And of course, we are proudly part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. And of course, when we come back, we are talking Ash Barty. Nestled in the spectacular Sun Valley area in Haley, Idaho, Matt's V-Lander Tennis allows athletes like you and me to train inside so that we can excel outside. Former number one and seven-time, yep, that's right, seven-time Grand Slam champion Matt's V-Lander 
now owns Gravity Fitness and Tennis. And let me tell you, Gravity is the premier fitness and tennis club in the Sun Valley area. They have it all, including indoor tennis, lots of high quality training equipment in a clean and bright, spacious workout area. They have yoga and Pilates, as well as hydro options. They also have martial arts and something I have never seen before, TRX suspension training. But most importantly, let's talk about the tennis. You will be trained by one of the all-time greats in the sport of tennis. Time on court with mats is an amazing experience, one I assure you you will never forget. After my clinic with mats, every time I step on the court, I hear that focused intensity in that charming Swedish accent, reminding me of all the techniques that improve my game and get results. So grab your family, your friends, or the whole tennis team and head out to Haley, Idaho for a tennis experience of a lifetime. Go to MatsVLanderTennis.com to find out what's in store for you when you get to Gravity Fitness and Tennis in beautiful Haley, Idaho. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com, the Aussie Open Recap. We are part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network, and we're going to talk Ash Barty ever so soon. But, Mats, did you happen to notice, you know, Rafael Nadal is kind of this working man's player. He goes to the court with a lunch pail and a hard hat. And, oh, by the way, a million-dollar watch that he's wearing during the match. Did you happen? Did you guys happen to notice the, the Richard Mille, Rafael Nadal million dollar watch that he was wearing during that is it a million or is it half a million, million dollars million dollars wow found that well out. yeah i noticed it i mean he's played with it he would never take it off now all right ash barty you know i gotta admit Matt, that when she took over as the number one player in the world my thought was you know here we kind of go again with a with maybe a caroline wozniacki sort of placeholder type number one player in the world. I don't know that this lady, this woman uh, is, is really a bona fide number one in the mold of a Serena Williams or even a Naomi Osaka, who's really able to take the racket out of your hand or, you know, the, 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 the Chris Everett, Martina, the, the graph, the type of number ones that we have become accustomed. But I got to tell you, after this Australian open, she is as bona fide a number one in the world and an amazing example and an amazing ambassador for certainly Australia, but for the sport of tennis that the, that the sport has seen. I'm a huge fan and a huge believer in Ash Barty. Oh, she's unbelievable. I mean, I actually agree with you a couple of years ago. I thought, okay, there's a slight weakness in the women's game, but, but then again, if you look back at, at the men's game, which number one in the world took the racket out of your hand? It's not easy to find. Pete Sampras, I suppose you could say a little bit. Boris Becker at his very best. But the rest of us were kind of grinding at serve and volley or baseline. So I think the, the, the number one is, is, uh, should be more of the consistent 
player who might not win that many majors, but shows up for every match, solves the problem. But Ash Barty, to me, I mean, she's obviously, you know, we're missing out on Naomi Osaka. She's, she's most probably the second best player in the world, I think, if she applies herself mentally. I think she's got all the weapons. Um, she's going to get better at the field game, but she's not playing at her best. Um, and there's some women that are really dangerous right now, but there's not really any women out there that are super confident that play a big game. So it suits Ash Barty really well. Having Danielle Collins go through is kind of, that's the evidence of that for sure. Uh, but I am starting to think that the backhand is not a weakness anymore. People are saying that, oh, it's a weakness, her weakness. And it's not a weakness. It's a strength. That's the side they have trouble with. And if they don't have trouble with it, she actually has figured out how to come over the two-handed backhand. So you can't really uh, uh, give her nothing there either. So, I, I mean, she's far from having reached her potential um, in my book. She's going to get better and better and better. And I think the other women better, better watch out because she could suddenly turn into the Roger Federer of the women's game where she's going to pick you apart. doesn't matter if it's on a slow clay court or a low-balancing grass court, or a fast hard court in Australia. She's going to pick you apart, unless you can blow her away. But soon, with that serve and the forehand, you can't blow her away anymore. Johnny, he talks about some of the big-hitting players on the, on the women's side. And, and when we had Pat Cash on the show, in the last show, Pat talked about how every single female in that locker room, after what we saw at the U.S. Open with Raducanu and Fernandez, now thinks they can win a slam. And I think we saw that mindset from Danielle Collins. We saw it from Madison Keys. And in a match against Naomi Osaka, we saw it against Amanda Anasimova. So we are seeing some American women that, you know, you talk about a player that can take the racket out of your hands. That's exactly what Madison Keys was hitting the ball like. That's how Danielle Collins was hitting the ball and, and Anasimova as well. Let's start with Collins and what we saw from her, I mean, she certainly got a level of intensity that, that for my taste, and I've said it and I'll stick to my guns, I find a bit, a bit off-putting, a little bit hard to get my arms around her. But again, like what I said about Medvedev, then she gets in front of a microphone uh, afterward and she seems gracious and, and quite a bit more endearing. But just sticking to the, the X's and O's of the tennis, uh, it, it is getting to the final of a major something that we might want to consider getting used to with, let's just say the three of Collins, potentially Keys, and, and even Anna Samova as she gets a little older. And what about Jessica Pagula? Right. And who, who made the quarterfinals of the, of the Australian Open and, and had some really nice wins. But, but yeah, no, Collins is, a, is, is fierce of a competitor um, that you'll ever see in, in, in the women's game. And I think that her competitiveness is her greatest strength. I mean, she hits, hits the ball a ton. She's got weapons. She knows how to win, and she's never going to beat herself on the on the court. Um, super talented, and I do think that she's got uh, potential to be, you know, a consistent top ten and 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 top five player. Can she win a slam? I, I don't see why not. I mean, uh, anything can happen, like you said, in the women's game, and you know, a Barty could, could could get upset, or and and she could see herself winning like Wozniak won the Australian. I mean, she could win the Australian Open. So I, I think she's got a tremendous future ahead of her. Madison Keys, it's nice to see her back. She's obviously always had the talent. She she hasn't been consistent late, as of late. But to get to the semifinals of this tournament is, is a great effort. I'm sure we're going to see some big things from her. 
Um, yeah, I mean, the U.S. women are uh, it's it's looking very, very positive for them right now in women's tennis. I'll put on my my Chris Fowler hat back on just for a quick second. I'm going to mention that right before Jessica Pagula went out on the court and was just obliterated by Ashley Barty, six two six love. I'm not sure that that's coincidental that that was on the heels of the Buffalo Bills choking away a lead in the last 13 seconds of a playoff game against the Kansas city chiefs. So, you know, her parents being the owner of the Buffalo bills, I felt that the timing of that may have been a little bit unfortunate. It may have had nothing to do with it, but I think it might have. So let's talk about Madison keys because she was one match that I really feel like has shown an, an enormous year over year level of improvement based on really nothing more than an improved and more mature mindset was that something that you all were noticing that wow madison keys is not only back but we may be on the verge of seeing the best version of her because we seem to be seeing the happiest version of her maybe that we've ever seen yeah no absolutely where she's going she's going in the right direction and let me just throw this in if she she should look at Danielle Collins because there's a body language that you want to have. And I'm telling you, if Daniel Medvedev could borrow the body language of Danielle Collins in these two finals, he does not lose to Rafa Nadal because that crowd was not nice to Danielle Collins either. They were rough. And of course, there you can excuse them because Ash Barty being Australian. Madison Keys, she needs a little bit more fire now. I, I love that she's acknowledged that her shot selection uh, has been a little bit off over the years. Uh, I love the fact that she listened to her boyfriend and openly, publicly said it, that Bjorn Frontangela said, he's not coming to watch me play anymore because he doesn't want to see me in this much pain and not enjoying my time on court. So she decided to, I'm going to enjoy every moment. And with that, she said, came a focus on shot selection rather than, than hitting great shots. She's trying to hit the right shot. Now, that doesn't come easily. That's going to take a couple of years to me to actually – she could still win it because she has a big game. But because she's physically so strong, technically she's so good, I really think we have a potential Stamber Rinka in the makings. Somebody who gets to nearly 30 years old uh, uh, before they win their first major and they could win two or three. That's Madison Keys for me. Before we check out for this for this segment, Johnny, I want to let you have the last word. And I want to ask you about Stefanos Tsitsipas, who was a guy that I thought was really humming along beautifully, particularly in the way he just absolutely dismantled and dominated Yannick Center. At that point, I really thought we were set up for an epic semifinal against Daniel Medvedev, only for, uh, yes, Tsitsipas got a set, but other than that, kind of went out without a whimper. Matt makes mention of Stan Wawrinka and how he kind of came on late in his career to start winning majors. Is it going to be that kind of a waiting game for us with Tsitsipas? Is it a shot selection situation? What do you see with him that you're both encouraged by and maybe disappointed by? Because I think we saw signs of both in this tournament. Yeah, Tsitsipas has got some work to do for sure. He seems to struggle with Medvedev, and, and I think that in his whole career, I don't know what the win-loss record is, but I don't think it's too good. I think One four. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, that's just not a good matchup for him. 
But in order for him to get to the finals consistently and, and potentially win these slams, something's got to change. I, I don't know what that is. I would, I would defer to Matt's on that because, uh, you know, he, he's more in touch with these guys. But uh, I love the guy's game, but I'm disappointed that he hasn't shown a little more fight and a little more consistency in the bigger matches towards the, towards the deeper into the slam tournament. So um, we'll see. I don't, I don't know, Andy, on that one. That's a tough one. Tsitsipas in this tournament, uh, when he beat Benoit Pair, he didn't know that he had won. That's right. He was love 40. And this is in the fourth set. This is 5-4 love 40. And he wins that point and he goes into the he goes into the deuce court. And he thinks, I guess it's 15-40. He didn't win it. And then he realized when he turned around that he had won it. And he wasn't like he didn't care. He went absolutely nuts over the fact that he had just won it. But he didn't know that he'd won it. And we saw another match where he didn't know that there was a changeover. Okay, if you look at him when it's, when it's 4-2 or 3-3 or 5-1 in a tiebreaker, he will never be the guy that makes the first move towards changing sides. He is gone in terms of uh, he's in the present, but he's, a, and I know this from Patrick Mora to Glow, Serena Williams coach, they call him a dreamer. Okay, he's a dreamer. He's, just, he's on a different mission than counting the score. Uh, he, he's, he's using tactics but he doesn't really know what's going on. I've seen so many situations now where he either forgets to take a shirt with him to the locker room to change in the middle of a match. Last year, Australian Open, his father screamed at him to start drinking the, the, the orange bottle because that's what has your electrolyte. I mean, he's, he's not quite there when it comes to counting the score. He's there when it comes to emotions. But I'm wondering if, if this is something that maybe he, he, he's... Uh, he's going to get beaten up tactically by these guys if he doesn't quite know 100% what the score is. I mean, love 30, you play a certain point. 15-30, you play another point. 30-15, you play a different. 40 love. you know what I mean? It fits with, and he doesn't do that. And that really worries me. Those of us that grew up playing junior tennis here in the United States, Matt, we refer to that as he's out to lunch. I think is the term that you're looking uh, on for. a Greek island, but he's a smart guy <laughs> on a Greek island. Matt, maybe, maybe um, he should think about a coach other than his father. That's what I was going to suggest. Yeah, exactly. Oh, a hundred percent. It's time. It's time to let him go. Um, he does not play better or worse when his father is coaching. So I think it's time for for um, Mr. Tsitsipas to let his son go. All right, when we come back, let's talk about the doubles because we finally saw something. Now, we haven't seen anything really light a fire for men's doubles since uh, Bob and Mike stepped aside, but we may have a pairing that if they decide to take it seriously, might be able to take the baton and run with it. We'll see what these guys think. You're listening to kickserveradio.com part of tennis channel podcast network this is our australian open recap we got some fun stuff when we come back so don't go away be right back with you welcome back everybody kickserveradio.com final segment and guys uh maybe we have saved the best for last because one of the more entertaining pairings that we saw was the K&K, Kokonakis and Kyrgios pairing. And we've been hearing a lot about these guys for so long as being the future of Australian tennis while we were watching some of their doubles mats. It was, they made mention of the fact that these guys had actually won junior Wimbledon. 
I believe it was back in 2013. And in the eight, eight and a half, nine years since, had literally won one tennis match together since then. They pair up for this Australian Open. Of course, Kokonakis has been plagued by injuries throughout his career. They come in unseated. They win the Australian Open on Australian soil right after Ash Party does the same thing. And these guys were quite entertaining. It would seem to me that if they chose to make doubles a little bit more of a priority, that they could really rekindle some of the excitement that has gone away from men's doubles, at least seemingly since the Bryan brothers stepped aside. Yeah, that's if security allows people to bring uh, the Kellogg's cornflakes, special <laughs> K-boxes. Because right. when they were playing on, jo- on uh, John Kane Arena outside, so not in the finals, but all the other matches, there were, there were I don't know, hundreds of people with, with the Kellogg's uh, cereal box, special I K. Saw those. I mean, it was unbelievable, to be honest. Um, I mean, Kokonakis, I think, unfortunately for your thought, I think uh, Tanasi Kokonakis is still very interested in making it as a singles player. I do th- still think that he thinks uh, that he has the talent and the technique uh, to get up in sort of in the top 20 in the world. Um, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't reject that idea. I think he's got big game. He's got big heart. Um, physically, can he last? Is he going to break down every time? So far, it seems like that's the case. But yeah, you would hope that that uh, they think that's the most fun that they've ever had in the tennis court. It was unbelievable. It's the most watched men's doubles match in the history of Australian tennis on TV. Yeah, isn't that incredible? And of course, uh, Ash Barty was just ahead of them. So that night for for Aussie tennis was just um, it could it could change everything. Really, could you could have inspired a whole nation with tennis players? But yeah, I'm not sure. I don't hang my. I don't think Nick Kyrgios. Nothing's going to make him uh, be serious about anything, to be honest, except entertaining. And I have to give it to him. He brought it. And that match against Nadine Medvedev um, is the perfect match for him. He didn't win. He was really close. Doesn't really practice that much. Had COVID before. Was quarantined for a week. Didn't have physio that worked on him. I didn't realize he ever used the physio, to be honest. But the guy, he's a genius. He's genius. He's talented. Uh, he tried really hard to win that match against Medvedev. He tried really hard to win the matches in doubles. But he's still entertaining and he's still clowning around. So he's the, I mean, basically the best thing that can ever happen to tennis if he tries on every point, he can play between his legs 15 points in a row. I don't care. Uh, but uh, I've kind of lost hope a little bit, uh, I have to say. We had John McEnroe on our show at the Eurosport, and I asked him, uh, so did you watch the match? And he said, no, can't watch Nick anymore. Uh, too, my expectations are too high. He tears my heart out. It's a great kid. Uh, he's really talented, but I just can't watch him wasted away like he is. So, I think that sums it up because obviously Mackinac knows him from the Labour Cup. But I mean, maybe, I hope so. The doubles game, let me tell you, needs it badly. The doubles game without the Bryans have lost more than just the Bryans. They have lost a lot more of their profiles. And they, to me, the doubles game, they are struggling. They're good players, but there are not many profiles left in doubles, I have to say. We watched Johnny. Uh, it was Kyrgios and Kokonakis versus the, the number three seed Zabalos and Granayers, uh from Spain. And I mean, those Australians are cruising along up a set in 4 1. Suddenly it's 4 2. And Nick lets a service game get away. And suddenly, uh, just in the blink of an eye, the obliteration of a beautiful Yonex tennis racket 
out of nowhere. The guy has just got the shortest fuse and Matt and Matt's talks about him being so great for the sport of tennis, but ultimately does that short fuse end up diffusing any opportunity that this guy has to really create any kind of momentum, but God, the guy's fuse, it just seems like he just can't control himself. Yeah. I mean, and, and he's very lucky that he had Kokonakis there by his side when, when he went crazy, because I think that relationship, um, you know, Tanasi knows how to handle him. And I think, I think he didn't want to let, let him down. And so I think he kept himself from just totally, you know, going into meltdown mode because he was close and that's what happens to him in singles. And I think partly it's, it's, it's a, a nervous anxiety uh, mechanism for him to, to, to go crazy so that he doesn't have to, you know, play the match. And it's just a, his, his excuse out that he just went nuts and tanks or whatever. I think it's a way of him not being able to cope with the pressure ultimately. And it's sad because, you know, and I can see where McEnroe, you know, he just gets so disappointed because we all see such an amazing talent, a guy that could win slams, you know, maybe this will take him to a different level um, of commitment. I don't know. I, I know he's not going to go all doubles. I don't think that's a wise move, but certainly they can, they can win another slam if, if they want to keep playing together. And what a great, great thing for the Australian open fans for them to see their countrymen win, win that slam title. That was really something. And beat another Australian team in the final. So it was all Aussies all the time in the doubles. Yep. Speaking of, of the way Tanasi is able to, as Johnny says, you know, sort of handle uh, Nick's ups and downs and help him kind of through those things. You were back in the day, probably competing against McEnroe and Fleming. Is that something that Peter was doing for John to make sure that he didn't go too far off grid and let his temper tantrums and emotions get the better of him? I think absolutely. I mean, he calls him junior. Okay. Uh, yeah. That's what he called. That's what he, how he refers to him still junior, junior. Um, so I think so. I think that there was, I mean, they're not from the same town necessarily grew up together. Peter, I would say it's most probably three or four years older than John, but still somehow there was, there's a relationship that was formed. I mean, I really think Nick Curious needs to, I don't know, need to, doesn't matter, need to. He should consider taking Kokonakis to the side and saying, Tanasi, I love hanging out with you, love playing doubles with you. Why don't we hire the same coach? We get the same physio. You can have him 90% of the time because I don't want him, but at least we're together and I'm going out having fun. I mean, how can you not right. enjoy that as a, as a tennis player? That would be really weird unless you just don't like leaving home. You don't like leaving your mates back home in Australia. I mean, there are people that don't do that. You know, they, they, they end up living in the same block, same apartment. They go to the same pub every night. They never, ever, nothing ever changes. And Nick Curious seems to be a real uh, home. Like he, he, he wants to be home with his mates and whatever. So I'm wondering about the traveling, if that's the pain and it's a, and a uh, sort of a, becomes a little bit of an aggressive thing for him and negative. But again, he's got years. I would think you form a team, not with trainers and all that, but with a buddy and Tanasi Kokonakis or another player and get a coach for four guys and, Go and have fun. Just play. I don't know why he wouldn't try that now that they have this um, 
I mean, they, they could be the best doubles team in the world. They really could. Spoken from a card-carrying charter member of the original Swedish Armada, he would know of what he speaks with regard to traveling with a rat pack of players on the tour, Mats Vlander did, along with the Edbergs, the Sundstroms, the Nystroms, the Yards, and all the guys that were doing all the damage together. And I can't help but believe that that team concept that you're describing, Mats, was a large measure of your success. All right, let's move on, Johnny. The Carvana Arizona Tennis Classic. It's on. It's a full go. Everybody's excited. It was so amazing back in 2019 watching Matteo Berrettini really, you know, give birth to what is now a career that has gotten him to a couple of major semifinals, a major final, playing Novak Djokovic in the final of Wimbledon last year, getting to the semis with some great wins along the way. We were just talking about it uh, off air when we were talking about the fact that he had to had to tangle with Alcaraz early and uh, and he had to deal with Monfils late and then finally uh, a four-setter against Nadal. But you got a big-time event down there in Phoenix coming up in mid-March. Let's hear about it. We're getting very excited for it, Andy. March 14th will be a Monday is when the event will start. And it will go through that following Sunday. And as you know, we are situated uh, during the second week of Indian Wells. So we have an opportunity. We have three wild cards. If um, some of the players, a couple of top players maybe lose early and they want another tournament before they go to Miami, there's there's an opportunity to play at uh, at our event in, in Phoenix. And we, we typically get a very, very strong player field, one that is equivalent to many of the, the ATP 250s just because of that nice calendar slot that we have. And when we, we had our event in 2019, we had um, the first 22 on our player acceptance list were in the top 100. So we had six guys in the top 50 in the world in that event. So we're, we're excited to get a, a great field. We won't know it till. Uh, three weeks before the tournament is when we'll have the final list. Everything can be found on our website. We're selling public, uh, you know, general admission tickets. We'll have day session starting midday, maybe even 10, 10 to 12 uh, a.m. And then we'll start a night session Monday through Friday at 630. And uh, we have a great center court. And then Saturday and Sunday, we'll have day sessions for the semis and the finals. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and we're just really fired up and it's been a while. We, we, you know, we missed it the last two years. So everyone is just really excited to see the tennis. The country club is pumped to, to host it. And, um, you know, we have a lot of great volunteers and everything is in full motion. Andy, we're, we're, we're going to be anxiously awaiting the arrival of you and Matt's to be our ambassadors of the tournament. So that's going to make it extra special. Yeah, I think people are, are excited, you know, about me coming down, maybe Matt's to a certain extent. I know <laughs> that uh, I know that a couple of years ago we were we were treated to a, a cameo from Bethany Maddox Sands, who lives down there. She's sort of the princess of Arizona tennis, and she was just coming off of an Australian Open title. I can't remember if she had just won. It may have been the mix with Jamie Murray at the U.S. Open prior to that. I know that she was on a on a pretty good run, and hopefully we'll get a chance to see a little glimpse of her but yeah you're right obviously having Matt Vlander come down that means you're doing something right if you're getting this guy to get to to, to saddle up the the Winnebago and drive it down <laughs> to Arizona with with a few sets of golf clubs and a couple of bags of tennis rackets and uh 
That's going to be fun. This is where the ATP Tour needs to follow the the, the sort of the structure of the PGA Tour. Right. I mean, really, you got a seven-time major champion here, Johnny. You throw me a wild card, I'll go in there and play. I don't <laughs> mind. I don't mind. I mean, I don't mind. In golf, they do that all the time. I mean, Gary, Gary just stop playing the Masters. I don't know why we don't do that. I mean, I can most probably hold serve once. Should we bring Nystrom in and get you guys in the doubles, and maybe maybe try to get <laughs> give, give a wild card to Tanasi and and Nick and and maybe pair you guys up in the first round? That would be a match to see. You would not have enough seats for that one. But the fact that that you've got Matt Vlander, you know, kind of uh, you know, seeing if he can't talk into a wild card takes me back to where we started the show, which is there's clearly some nervousness on his part. Now that Rafael Nadal has won his second Australian Open and is only one Aussie behind Mats Vlander's three, but Andy, he will never get a title like Mats did on grass on different surfaces. That's right. That's right. No, that's that's right. Is, that is a good point. You but know? let me just throw in here because I don't because I'm looking forward to it, Johnny, so much. Just for people that are listening, this week, okay, for the men's pros. The week in between the second week of Indian Wells before Miami, if you don't play a match, it is, it's basically death by practicing. It is absolutely horrible if you lose early Indian Wells and you don't play a match for, I mean, it, it can nearly be two weeks. Yeah. Okay. It is shocking. It has happened to me and it's happened to so many players. So I think that's really, first of all, it's great by you to, to do it. But it's really, really important for the players uh, to have something to go to. And, and, and thirdly, the people that go and watch this, they have to go there and understand this is not a small challenger. This is a, a stepping stone to something huge, maybe even something huge in Miami already, because you have some of the best players in the world, whether they're ranked 80 or 70 or 60 or 100. They can win tournaments like Miami. They can get to semifinals because you'll see the – the players that make up the ATP tour and they're in their real job. Okay. You'll have people there, but they're not a huge center court and they'll be on outside courts and they're grinding it out and you can get right next. I mean, this is, this is what, this is real professional tennis to me. What you see on TV is something different. I hope you got television coverage by the way, but it's the matches that don't are not on TV. Seriously. They are so good. These players and they're going to be so pumped because they have something to do. Love it. And as Andy knows, this this situation where our center court is is situated is the the seating is right right up close. So it's not like a huge stadium where you're way back. Yeah. It's a very intimate setting for the public to be able to be right up close and watch the action and and that makes it really, really nice for the for the spectators. It's the Carvana Arizona Tennis Classic at the Phoenix Country Club, March 14th through 20th. It is the second iteration of it in the first one Matteo Berrettini staved off match points against Mikhail Kukushkin in the final in the doubles the British team of Jamie Murray and Neil Skupski won the doubles this is a big time tennis event one that you want to plan a tennis trip around you can count on amazing weather you can count on amazing Johnny Levine level hospitality and that's high trust me I've been around it. It is an incredible experience. Matt's Vlander will be there. I will be riding his coattails. We will do a live version of kickserveradio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. While we are down there, why would you not want to go? Johnny, thank you so much for giving tennis fans this opportunity. 
for Andy Zoden, Mats Vlander, and the director of the Carvana Arizona Tennis Classic, Johnny Levine. We are out for now, but we will see you soon. <laughs>